Morning, Legacy Church. Holding down the fort here this morning. Good to see you. Good to see you who are live streaming with us today. Hey, there's a classic Far Side cartoon, and it's got a dog. He's hanging out the window of his master's car, and he's talking to his doggy friend who's on the ground there, and he says, Biff, Biff, we're going for a ride, and first we're going to go to the pharmacy, and then we're going to go to the hardware store, and then we're going to go to the vet, and I'm going to get tutored. Ha, ha, ha. Not sure he understood exactly what that meant. But uh, today I want to talk about following Jesus and maybe do some clarification just to make sure we understand what it means. Most of us here this morning, I think we're all Christians and followers of Jesus and already we're disciples, but we can always deepen our understanding of following Jesus and broaden that. So it's good to revisit and reaffirm these things. Now, so we're in our sermon series, Obey Everything, we're leaving the Sermon on the Mount where most of the commands of Jesus are concentrated. We're going into the rest of Matthew's gospel, and there's not many more commands to look at. You think about it, most of the gospel is dealing with Jesus' actions, his interactions, his miracles, his death and his resurrection, just a sprinkling of commands. But in the passage we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 8, there are three people who come to Jesus, either disciples or would-be disciples, and the discussion is about following Jesus and a lot of clarification. So let's look at that. I'm going to say three things about following Jesus today. Uh, first of all, when we follow Jesus, we want to follow informed. We want to be informed about what it means to follow Jesus, Matthew 8, 19. Then one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. So here comes a potential follower. I will follow you wherever you go. Reminds me of the song. Some of you are old enough to remember, I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go. Anybody remember that? There isn't an ocean so deep, a mountain so high it can keep. It's not in my register, but you may remember. Some are smirking at me, but some of you will be humming that song over lunch today. If somebody today said, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he goes, I will follow. We pat him on the back, praise the Lord. That's a great thing. But Jesus' response almost seems like he's discouraging this guy. Hey, you want to follow me? Well, you need to know the foxes have their little holes and the birds of the air, they have their nests, but I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. So why this kind of a comeback? Well, we're going to infer something. And that's okay. But let's infer that the, this would-be follower maybe did not completely understand or he might have been misinformed who Jesus was as the Messiah, what it meant to follow him. In that day, there was a Jewish messianic expectation. So the Jews had an expectation of what to expect in a Messiah. It was informed by Old Testament prophecy. But there's really two streams of prophecy in the Old Testament. You got the prophecies that describe the Messiah as a conquering king, and you have those that describe the Messiah as a suffering servant. These are divergent to the point some rabbis thought there might be two messiahs. You got the conquering king and the suffering servant. So when Jesus came, he came more like the suffering servant than the conquering king. Now, he was a conquering king in a spiritual sense, but they were expecting somebody because Jerusalem and Israel was occupied territory, they were occupied by the Romans, the messianic expectation was when Messiah come, he would boot the Romans out of Jerusalem, set up the Jewish world empire, and it's time for them to rule, time for the Jews to rule. But Jesus didn't do that. I mean, he kicked the devil out, but he didn't kick the Romans out. And so he didn't meet that particular 
messianic expectations, much more suffering servant. So many of the Jews, this is one of the reasons they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, the majority, right? The, it was a minority that accepted Jesus. A majority of Jews rejected Jesus. And as we see his teaching and his actions throughout the Gospels, we see him often correcting this misconception about the nature of his kingdom. Now, so I think that's part of what's happening here. That's what I infer. Are there any misconceptions that we need to correct in our day about what it means to follow Jesus? Maybe. Uh, one that I do want to just camp out on for a minute is make sure we understand, and we probably do, that when we follow Jesus, we're not following him to the American dream. It's not the American dream is that you know, I'm going to do better than my parents did and my kids will do better than me. You know, it's not that following Jesus means everything falls into place. I get a bigger house and a fatter bank account and a, and a body without any health issues. But that's not what it means. We need to remember that. Our, our culture, especially some of the online evangelists, cultivate this idea of the health and the wealth gospel. And so if that is an expectation of people following Jesus, there might be some disillusionment that comes from that. Now, here's an important thing to bear in mind. When you look at the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, you have primarily physical, material promises and blessings. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant, under which we Christians live, it's primarily spiritual promises, spiritual rewards, and spiritual blessings. So the Jews, Jesus said, when you follow, or God said, you follow me, you obey my commands, you might have some land, you're going to get a kingdom, you get a long life, you get a big family. Basically, physical, material for Christians, it's get well, you get forgiveness of sin and eternal life, and you get the Holy Spirit, maybe the church, and you get spiritual blessings, love, joy, peace, patience. There's a definite distinction and differentiation, and sometimes we get in trouble when we try to pull some of those Old Testament prophecies and apply them in our New Testament context. That's not the case. So Junior was the first day in kindergarten, and after he'd had lunch, he began packing up his lunchbox and his backpack, and he was slinging his backpack on, and the teacher said, Junior, what are you doing? He said, well, after lunch, my mom comes and picks me up, and I go home. She said, Junior, you're not in preschool anymore. You're in kindergarten. I mean, you need to put that stuff away. You still got three more hours of school. And he got a sour look on his face. He said, who signed me up for that? Sometimes, you know, we're Christians, and uh, we go through some, some hard stuff, and we say, well, how come things aren't working out for me? I thought if I was obedient to God, you know, these kind of things aren't supposed to happen to me, but they do. And not just the general suffering that comes from living in a fallen world, that's the human ex experience, but also just as a result of being a Christian, Christians experience sometimes a genre of suffering or pushback that non-Christians, they get out of because they're willing to go along and get along. A Christian can't always do that. So there's this whole different genre of suffering that a Christian might experience. But anyhow, so just want to say, we're saying three things about what it means to follow Jesus. And first, it's following in form. So let's not conflate being a disciple of Jesus with the American dream. Now, I got a nice house, and I have two good cars, education, great job, you know, things are good. Some of you have those things as well. Nothing wrong with that. Don't hear me say I'm saying something wrong with material prosperity. We've been able to enjoy that for a long time here in America, but we're not equating that with following Jesus. So if some of those things go away or are taken away, it's not as if God has broken any promises. And Jesus is being very upfront. He, he, he will not do a bait and switch, will he? He's not saying, oh, if you follow me, everything's going to be great. He's right up front. I'd love for you to follow me, but understand, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So it could be a hard road at some point. 
All right, so follow in form. Secondly, follow first. Saying three things about following Jesus, and the second one is follow first. So here comes another disciple. This is Matthew 8, 21. So another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, this seems a little bit harsh, a little bit harsh. I mean, why? Sounds like the guy just wants to go to the memorial service for his father, and Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. Well, there's, again, let's do some inferring, and these are fair inferences. It could very well be that this guy's father wasn't even dead yet. I mean, if he was, at that time, in that culture, in that land, in that climate, they buried within 24 hours. If his father died, he should be at the funeral service, not over here talking to Jesus, and he probably would have been. It's more of the idea the man is saying, you know, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to live with my parents. I'm going to take care of these family obligations until they pass away. That could be years. When that's all done, then I'm going to come over here and I'll think about kingdom things and spiritual things and I will follow you. So he's kind of using family obligations as an excuse to not follow Jesus. I'm going to do this first, he said, first. And Jesus' comeback is let the dead bury the dead. You know, we follow Jesus first above everything. And one of the reasons Jesus, in two of these instances, is going to focus a little bit on family, is sometimes, not always, but sometimes family, we, we can idolize family. We can make a mistake of idol. It's, it's an idol sometimes. In the Pew Research Center survey, twice as many Americans said that family was the most meaningful aspect of their lives at 40%. Compared to the second most popular choice, which is faith, at 20%. Now, that's Americans. Americans. What's the most important part of your life? Family, 40%. 20% said faith. But when you get to Christians, it's basically the same thing. For when they surveyed the Christians, it was 42% said family and 29% said faith. Now, theologian Tim Keller writes, the human heart can take good things, good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, and even family, and turn them into ultimate things. See the difference? A good thing versus an ultimate thing. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significant security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. Hey, Jesus was teaching. He was teaching in a house when his family came to collect him mom and his brothers because they said he's crazy. Jesus has gone crazy. So they came to take him away, take him to the asylum, I guess. And somebody told him, Jesus, your, your family's out there. And Jesus looked at the people that he was teaching. He said, this is my family. These are my mother, my brother, my sister, those who do the will of my father in heaven. That's my family. Now, throughout the scriptures, family is an emphasis. And we know that one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. Go into the funeral for your father and your mother. That's honoring your father and your mother. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the New Testament, Paul says, if a person doesn't take care of their family, they're worse than an infidel. We're supposed to, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands, and take care of the children. So all, that's an emphasis that's woven throughout Scripture. There's no conflict there, except where there might have to be a choice made. Now, I don't think this is too applicable here in American society. These kinds of choices maybe don't have to be made too often, but think of maybe if you lived in an Islamic nation, for instance. Think of that. So if you had a husband and the wife, you got a Muslim husband, and the wife decides she wants to follow Jesus, there's going to have to be a choice made then. So you're going to have to choose between Christ and family. 
because there's a huge price to pay in those circumstances. And, of course, don't think those choices have not had to be made. They do all over the world. Now, we, that might not be our situation so much. Our situation may be much more in our families. We have to, if we're going to put Jesus first, we have to choose to inculcate into that family uh, our children, for those of us who may have children, some of us are older, it may have to do with grandchildren or in our own lives, to inculcate that Jesus comes first. Jesus comes first in this family. Uh, first over maybe a lesser job than a better job, going to a community college versus an Ivy League school, you know, accepting a lesser salary, if those kind of choices have to be made. Now, I referenced last week a book called Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher, Live Not by Lies. And as you recall, if you were here, now this is a book where the guy, he's interviewing Christians who lived through communism, socialism, and how they did that and how they did that in the families. And the book has, I recommend this book. There's a reason I'm dwelling on it a little bit. It has strategies for Christian families in America as we move into what he calls soft totalitarianism. And if you don't see us moving in that direction, you may not be paying attention to the trends. Okay, so strategies for families as we move into soft totalitarianism, Christian strategies on how to be a Christian dissident. But anyhow, I gave an example from this book last week, and here comes another one. Vaclav Benda. Vaclav Benda was a man who lived in communist Czechoslovakia. He's Christian. His Christian wife, Camilla, and they raised six Christian children in communist Czechoslovakia. But he was a Christian dissident. He refused to join the Communist Party. And as a result, he lost his job as a university professor of philosophy and mathematics. And he had to take odd jobs, just work with his hands, have a lesser standard of income, and try to provide for the needs of his family. And now they've passed away, but his grown son Patrick says about that time, he says, sometimes it was hard. We were poor. We felt the difference. It was totally impossible to buy anything fashionable, collectible toys that every child had. We didn't but it made us stronger. We were not hurt by being different because we considered this exceptionality as a value and not as something bad, end quote. The children were brought up not to go along to get along in totalitarian society. The parents knew that if they didn't strongly impart a sense of difference to their children, they risked losing them to propaganda and widespread conformity to the totalitarian system. Now, eventually, Vaclav Benda was arrested and imprisoned for four years because he was a Christian, and he wouldn't go along. So he's in prison for four years. While he's in prison, he calls. There comes a point where he's able to call his wife, Camilla. Camilla takes the call, and he says, they're talking about releasing me early if we are willing to migrate to the West, to immigrate to the West, then they might let me out early. His wife said, no, I don't think we should do that. She said, we need to stay right here and stand up for what we believe in this country. And he did. He served out the rest of his prison sentence. Now, here's a woman. She is raising six children by herself, a communist country, and her husband's in prison. And she is willing to sacrifice 
that companionship and really the comfort level of our own children and greater political and religious freedom to stand up for what they believe. It's remarkable. And again, their grown son Patrick writes this. He says, we knew people who gave in for the sake of their children. They wanted their children to have a better education, so they compromised their values and entered the Communist Party. But in the end, they alienated themselves from their own children. I saw this when I was in college in 1989 during the Velvet Revolution. Some students positively hated their parents who made those compromises for them, end quote. Today, the children and grandchildren of Dr. Benda have the letters he sent to their mother and grandmother, respectively, from prison. They were written, a written testimony of how the prisoner's rock-solid faith helped him to endure captivity, and he is their hero, their hero. All right, more extreme conditions than we have, but just kind of setting the table, setting the stage, and getting us ready to follow Jesus first if choices have to be made. And then the third one, the third person, we'll look at a parallel gospel. We're going to go to Luke here. One more person comes to Jesus, and this has to do with follow Jesus forward. Follow Jesus forward. Luke 9, 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And uh, so verbs in Greek have tenses, and this is the present continuous tense when he says look back. So it's not just one glance back. This is somebody who's constantly looking back over their shoulder. Oh yeah, I follow you, Jesus. But they're always looking back at their family or they're looking back at the job or whatever they had to sacrifice. Whatever it is about the world that they miss so much, they're always looking back. They got, haven't severed those affections for the world or the world system. God doesn't like it when we look back. It bothers him. You think of uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, all the trouble that God went to free them from Egyptian slavery. You got the ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is chasing them, the waters come back over the Egyptian army, so he delivers them from slavery. So they get out there in the wilderness, and they got one night where they're hungry, and uh, then they wax nostalgic and start romanticizing their past as slaves in Egypt. They say in Exodus 16.3, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. There we sat around pots filled with mead with all the bread we wanted, but now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. You think that's what slavery was really like? They just sat around pots eating mead and eating bread all the time. I think they romanticized that a little bit, and they're looking back. God was very, very bothered by this. Remember uh, Lot? And his wife, God rescued them from Sodom and Gomorrah, practically pushed them and their daughters out, made them run before he destroyed the city. He said, don't look back. And Lot's wife looked back, right? This is Genesis 19, 26. She turned into a pillar of what? Salt. Salt. Bothers God. You just think, if you were at your anniversary and you had a nice, if you're married and you had a nice, got the candlelit dinner going on, maybe it's your 25th anniversary, and you look across at your spouse, and a penny for your thoughts, and your spouse says, well, you know, I was kind of thinking of my old girlfriend back in college or my old boyfriend. What would it have been like if I'd married them? I think I might have been better off. It's a bit of a mood killer right there. And God's a person. God's a person. Since Jesus, Jesus dies, he's followed me. And we're always looking back and regretting those decisions. No, he's a person. It hurts. Philippians 3.13 says, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. No turning back. 1518, Hernando Cortez invades Mexico, 
His charter is to explore the interiors. You know what happened? You may know this. When he landed, you know what they did with their ships? He and his men, he scuttled the ships and burned them because he wanted his men to know there's no going back. We're here. We're going forward. It's forward or die. No turning back. So at one point, Peter, now granted the disciples gave up quite a bit to follow Jesus. And in Matthew 19, 27, Peter said to Jesus, he said, hey, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? What are we going to get out of this? And Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new, when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, everyone who's given up houses or brothers, sister, father, mother, or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. All right, what's he saying? It's going to be worth it. Whatever you give up, whatever you sacrifice, whatever you lose and whatever's taken away, to follow Jesus, it's going to be worth it. He could have said something else. You know, this is really, this is the perks and benefits. <laughs> but he could have said, I kind of wish he would have said, I'll tell you what you get. You get me. You get Jesus. That's what we get. I mean, the, those benefits are nice. You're thinking about heaven and family, you know, and the church and all the blessings spiritual blessings that come from following God, not diminishing those. But the whole point of following Jesus is you get Jesus. That we cultivate such a relationship with God. It's the love of God. It's God that makes heaven heaven. It's the presence of God. We cultivate the, with such a relationship with God and with Jesus that he's the pearl of great price. He himself is worth anything that we gave up to follow. It's Jesus. When I was a kid, we used to sing the song, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. If you know that, sing it with me. And look, uh, you know, there's probably, for most of us, there's a time we can point to in the past where we made the overarching decision, I believe, I've repented my sin, I confess Jesus as Lord, I'm baptized into Christ, and so we made that decision. Isn't it true it's a decision we kind of have to make every day? I get up in the morning and say, today, I set apart Christ as Lord in my heart, today, I will follow Jesus. So as we sing this together, if you know the words, you know, say the words to, to God. Today I'm deciding to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. The whole world's behind us. The cross is before us, but there's no turning back. We're going to follow Jesus. So, Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus came. We thank you for what he did for us and what we want more than anything. More than anything, we just want Jesus. And we recommit ourselves. And once again, we decide today, as we have many days in the past, today to follow Jesus. Amen.